This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magnin. And I'm Le Colier du Meublet. And our topic this week is... So for the next two episodes, we are going to have a special topic. And we're going back to video games related topics. And I'm super excited for this week's episode to be about the nine games that represents us as video game players or as a gamer. Cool. Uh, but first, I have some follow-up. So... Uh, I have some follow-up from our friend of the show, Richard, uh, who wrote in about last episode regarding interviews. Uh, he has a counterpoint to what we said about, uh, or rather what I said about, it's easy to tell if somebody lied on their CV uh, because he had this experience where he had a phone interview and he was asked a simple question about React lifestyle. And despite using React at work, he just completely froze up and his mind went blank and he didn't really answer the question uh so obviously it didn't turn out well and i've had similar experiences not really in programmer interviews just like general job interviews in the past so i kind of get it and then there was another tweet which was mostly like interviews suck both giving and receiving uh (laughs) which i totally agree with um like even as an interview giver i'm not much of a fan of it. Uh, it kind of sucks that you're going to have to tell all but one of those people no anyway. Uh, although most of the time, I'm not the one who has to say no to them. Uh, I just give the words to my boss and he does the messaging for me. Uh, so yeah. Uh, he also sent us a photo of the official job requirements for a senior developer where he works, but I don't think we can share those. So I'm not just going to abstain from that for now. Uh, but it was very insightful to me anyway uh, to see what it looks like at a major corporation. Next up is some follow-up to episode 119. This was the episode Mako number 5 where we talked about Final Fantasy 7. Uh, this is just me butting in to say that uh, thanks to all of the hype surrounding Final Fantasy 7 Remake, I have picked up Final Fantasy 7, the original, again, and have been slowly playing through it, uh, sometimes on my lunch hour, sometimes at night after work. Uh, so progress is slowly being made i also know oh, nice. all of the final fantasy 7 remake spoilers now so oh anyone who wants to talk about those i am i will be glad to talk to you about them <laughs> and that does not include me i'm still spoiler no. free i think yes but i honestly can't wait until we do an episode where we play through a remake okay uh next up is some follow-up to episode 113 which was the episode about my first participation in a game jam because last weekend uh well actually let's go further back than that uh last week was my birthday and uh on the morning of my birthday i woke up and i saw that a woof had messaged me and said hey there's a game jam this weekend do you want to do it so i was like that's a great birthday present uh, and then I proceeded to not sleep all weekend and just code on this game that we worked together. Uh, Wolf invited one of his friends, Godshot, who is another uh, fighting game character illustrator. And we had a team of three and we made this game called Machine Learning, which is a sci-fi themed life sim similar to the Princess Maker series, if you've played that. Uh, I know at least one or two of our listeners have actually tried the game out, which is great. Uh, and it is like wildfire right now (laughs) on my twitter notifications there are like professional dragon ball fighters players who are tweeting us about it uh itch.io featured us for some reason which Uh, is amazing yeah it's kind of amazing but i guess that's the clout you have if you're woof i guess uh and it it's just very surreal to see uh the reaction to our game uh like so far the the most 
frequent comment I've had on uh, our comments page is this game is too long for a game jam game. And I agree. It was 45 minutes to an hour long to complete a single playthrough. And that actually turned out to be a problem because I was trying to test all seven endings in our game and I only had the time to test two. So we shipped the game, (laughs) assuming that they worked, and one of them had a variable name typo, so it didn't work. And yesterday night, I pushed out a version 1.0.1, which fixes the typo in the variable, and luckily that is allowed within the rules of the game jam as long as you write it in a change log on the page and like the source is public, so they can see that literally the one thing that changed was the variable name. Uh, And now all of the endings work. Uh, So... Go play our game if you like it. It's a PC and Mac and Linux game. It's great. And I'm a bad fan. I haven't played it yet. I'm sorry. sorry. It's cool. Now you get to benefit from the the bug fix. You're not like the one person who played it, spent 45 minutes grinding, and then got to the ending and got a crash and a blue screen saying there's an error in in the ending function. So yeah, great stuff. I do hope that uh, following your experience at it is the second year in a row, right? Because last year was also in the spring that you did it. Right. There are two LD game jams per year. There's one in the spring and one in the fall. I was in Japan during the fall one, so I had to skip that one. Uh, but yes, it's the second year in a row. Oh, nice. So I hope that first I'll have time to play. I guess I'm playing too much Animal Crossing, but that's a different topic. Uh, and that that uh, that the fact that I can play it before uh, we do, an, I guess you do an episode about your second experience about this game, Jan. Yes, and if you are uh, listening to this like as we put the episode out, uh, you can go support us on the Ludum Dare Game Jam website and go leave us ratings, which boosts us higher in the visibility of the games and the jam, and we could potentially win. There's no prizes if we win, but it would be cool to win, I guess, so go vote for us. Yeah, I forgot that part. Like, because in, in theory, it's like an hackathon. There's kind of like like winners, right? Yes. There are two events that go on. There's the compo, which is uh, you have to work in a team by yourself. Uh, you cannot use any uh, external resources, whether it be uh, public domain art or music or anything like that. You have to make everything yourself from scratch. Uh, and then there's the jam where you have more flexibility. You can use like third-party resources and you can work as a team of multiple people. Uh, so we participated in the jam and I think there are separate winners for the compo and the jam, uh, which makes a lot of sense because they have different restrictions. Uh, and yeah. Nice. So yes, I guess uh, go vote for Enix team and keep us posted with what you like about the game. Yes. And hopefully no crashes. Hopefully, Yeah. Um, I promised my team members that it would be more stable than the Guilty Gear Strive lobbies, which uh, Guilty Gear Strive is a fighting game that was on beta the same weekend. And the lobbies in the game would crash 90% of the time. (laughs) So that was like my running joke is whatever I do, it's going to be more stable than the Strive lobbies. And I've even with my dumb bug turned out to be true. So I nailed it. Uh, And my last piece of follow up is uh, unfortunately due to the COVID-19 crisis and the uh, Japanese lockdown, uh, arcades all across Japan are in a dire situation. And right now, all of the ones that are not owned by major corporate players are currently entirely depending on crowdfunding for the next month or more of uh, revenue. Uh, So I'm going to be putting a link to a Google Doc in the show notes where you can go support monetarily uh, some arcades uh, across Japan who are big independent arcades that are at risk of shutting down, which would be terrible because like 
these are the last big ones that we have. There are not very many of them left. And uh, Eternal Amusement Tower, which is previously known as Tri Tower, which I featured on my uh, Tokyo Travel Guide episode, that shut down. It was the first arcade to shut down, actually, due to the COVID-19 crisis. That means, like, the epicenter of the DDR community in Tokyo is gone now, uh, which sucks. Uh, so... In order to at least have some level of game preservation for these arcade games uh, that there are not very many copies of, uh, if you have money to spare for uh, the arcades, please donate and support your local arcades. And that's it for my follow-up. Good. So now for the main topic, I'd like to start with a small PSA about it. Is I would like to note that even if it is my week for topic, it was a Yannick topic. But I think what convinced me to kind of quote unquote steal this topic was my work on my backloggery account that I've done in the past, let's say three weeks. Um, Yannick always have uh, suggested that I start uh, an account on this service, which is more or less to log all the video games you've played. And I was always pushing it back. And to be honest, now I'm thinking of it, and even in my notes, I was trying to remember why I decided to just do it more or less three uh, weeks ago. I guess it's just part of boredom in the situation. I was like, hey, let's try to do something new, and which is what I did. I know it is. there's one part that I want to talk too much about it yet because it is more related to the next topic in the next episode, but it is somewhat related to me uh, kind of like uh, charging my PS Vita, and I won't say more than that. So in the past few weeks, I've been going through the recent, I would say about the recent t- 10 years? Uh, I don't have anything older than PS3, even though I've played uh, multiple games on PS2 and N64 before that. Uh, I've went through the easy route of just going into my uh, PS account and then going through my trophies and then just logging everything that I've played and, of course, look at the trophy list and see uh, if I won the uh, completed, uh, the typical trophies you win when you just complete the storyline. So in the end, I end up with a quite long list of games. And when you next suggested the idea of like, let's list all the nine, like, let's find nine games that represents us as a gamer. I was kind of not afraid, but stressed about this idea because like, this was make me think about like, how can I categorize that for myself? Uh, but now with this list in the end, I do feel that I am well equipped to properly answer this question. Uh, but I'm sure, Yannick, you do have some notes regarding this theme. Right. So first, I, I need to give credit. Uh, this is inspired by a meme that came out of the February 21st episode of the 84 Play podcast. Uh, there was a slow news week in video games because of all the COVID stuff. So they were just like let's do this weird random topic. And it became a meme on Twitter and people were doing it. And I was like, this would be more fun as a podcast episode because we get more than 280 characters to talk about it. Uh, So that's why this was an episode. I pitched it originally around the time that episode aired. uh, And then everything that you described happened and we ended up using it this week. Uh, So yeah, it's not our favorite nine games. It's not the best nine games, but it's the nine games that represent our taste in games or have been impactful in our appreciation of video games as a medium. So how do you want to do this? Do you want to like alternate picks? I don't know if we have the same count really. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I would start with that like in true, I guess, top four fashion, which I like to uh, chime in sometimes. I'm not sure if I'll go through exact uh nine 
the main reason is I do include, and maybe I can start with one of my first one, uh, which is more or less the Uncharted series, which is uh, at this point five games. So I'm sure if you count some of the series I've included, um, you'll go more than nine. But uh, I could also say in some of the series, I could define one of those games. So uh, I'll start with that. Uh, especially in the recent years, what I've really realized and what like encountered is most of the game I have time to play. Uh, I don't have that much time to invest in them. And I think that exact topic has been part of multiple discussion about our recent video game lives uh, in this podcast. So... While that in mind, the time I want to spend in a video game, I want it to be, it sounds well, it sounds weird to say, but I want it to be quite enjoyable. I want it to be an event. And every time I've played Uncharted, whether it was the first game on a PS3, which I didn't originally play on the PS3 when it first launched. Uh, I played when my original fat PS3 died and my parents replaced it with uh, a slim PS3 and it came uh, with Uncharted 3. Um, so I started with the third game, the third installment, and then they released the um, the remastered collection on a PS4, which was one, two, and three. And this as at the same moment that I played uh, Uncharted, I'm just looking for the name in my notes: uh, Uncharted's Drake's Fortune Remastered, Uncharted Two: Among Thieves Remastered, Uncharted Three: Drake's Drake's Deceptions Remastered. And what I like about those is, first, there are games quite heavily based on the story of the characters. They're kind of what I like to feel is they're a movie that you're interacting with. Like you're part of that movie, you're kind of going through that movie, but you need to do the job of the main uh, character of said uh, game. And there's a big storyline. Uh, I like with those, especially the adventure nest, right? I want, when I want to spend maybe like 10, 15, or I should say like 20, 30 hours in a video game, I want it to be an event. But while some of the things you do in that, uh, game could be repetitive, I don't want it to feel repetitive. And I do feel that story based adventure games are good in general at doing this you might go explore and do maps and puzzles overall but uh i always lose kind of interest about like grinding a lot of things uh overall in games so if there's repetitive mechanics in a game i want it to be just different enough so that um when I repeat those mechanics, I don't feel I repeat them. I just go along with the story because the story makes it okay to repeat it. And Uncharted is full of that. Like you have puzzles, you need to navigate in maps, and of course throughout the games they they've evolved from quite linear games. Overall, there are linear games like this. There's one path to the goal of this mission. With the last game trying to evolve with uh open world type of games with uh, the last uncharted the lost legacy but overall like i like this you have one path to go uh, if you fail you need to restart and go on that same path and end up with a story that ends up to be fulfilling in the end and that's why i would say like i want to start this podcast by talking about uncharted because i'll be talking about other games throughout this but i feel if there's one type of game one 
series of games, and those represent quite greatly who am I a gamer in the last five to seven years. I think it's not entirely surprising to people if they've listened to the Game of the Year episode to Agreed. know that. And um, that's kind of what working with this list. I have some oddities uh, that also fits with some other uh, hobbies or just like some of my personal interests. Uh, but overall, if you want me to get hooked on a game, if it is kind of uncharted but different some things or... I'll have another example later on, but if it's heavily based on stories, there's a high chance of me like, oh yes, I'll spend 20 hours playing on it because like there's there's something. And I guess I'll keep that because I'm expecting you'll have some RPGs in your game and I want to kind of have some of my personal opinion about why they're not me. So Yeah, I feel go like with there's your... going to be a, only a tiny bit of overlap, if there's any at all, between our lists. Yeah, and I think that's something not new to this. I think we feel, especially with our Game of the Year, every time we talk about video games, I feel we are at extreme opposites of the spectrum. And that's why I always like when we have discussion about video games. Oh, don't worry. We're going to have a lot of opportunities. Uh, so I'm going to start off with my first game, which is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. It was released in 2004. PS1, Windows, Game Boy Color, Dreamcast, Game Boy Advance, Mac, N64, and iOS. Um, one of the recurring themes you're going to be seeing through my list is that there are a lot of like meaningful firsts uh, to me in this list. Because a lot of the games that left an impression on me were like, oh, this is... an a facet of video games that I like to have in many of the games that I play. Uh, and in this case, like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 is the first game that I would 100% with all characters twice. Uh, I beat it 100% twice. twice. Yes, and I'll wow. explain why. Uh, I beat it 100% on the PlayStation 1 version, which was uh, I played emulated via uh, Connectics Virtual Game Station, which was the only playstation emulator for the mac at the time uh this ran in classic mac and then on os 10 they released tony hawk's pro skater 2 for the mac native and it looked so much better because the it was running directly on the graphics card of the g4 we had at the time and so i did the whole thing all over again on the mac version uh and what i really love about tony hawk's pro skater 2 is that it is the epitome of easy to play, hard to master. Uh, when you actually get really good at the game, stringing together really long combos is incredibly satisfying. Uh, it almost kind of reminds me of fighting games, but like in a single player way, not so much in terms of the mechanics, because like in fighting games, you can spend all of your time in the training mode and practicing your combos and practicing your combos. And if you don't also have like the mind games or better uh, strategizing than your opponent, it doesn't matter that you can pull off the combos. Whereas if you're playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, literally all you're graded for is, do you have the combos and can you land the combo? Like that is what's being tested. You don't have to worry about being up against an opponent. Uh, so that was really interesting. And another facet that I really found interesting about THPS 2 is it almost feels like beating the game was intentionally made very easy. And it almost sort of served as a tutorial because the developers were confident enough that the game is going to be so fun and deep that people are going to want to improve so that they can 100%. It's not every day nowadays that you beat a game and you immediately think, 
that was really fun. I could play another 20 hours of this. But that's what almost everyone who played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 back in the day thought as soon as they finished it. And the bonus is that the game actually had enough stretch goals left for you to do that you could fill another 20 hours with it and it didn't feel boring or repetitive at all. You were just like honing your skill, honing your skill until you could knock off all the little checkboxes. And then if you were crazy like me, you did it with every character, uh, which is I would not recommend if you wanted to do something productive with your time. But I was a kid. I had nothing better to do. Uh, so Tony Roxbury Skater 2, I mean, it's definitely a five-star game for me. Uh, but it's also a very impactful game in terms of like what I look for in video games for me. Okay, I think we start. You and I are starting quite strong because while I know that you're not the biggest fan of like uh, the Uncharted series, I don't know. I do know you don't really. You're not the, like you don't really dislike them. You just know that they're not your style, right? Uh, I was never ever a big fan of skater games. I was like, what's the purpose? <laughs> uh, to me, they're a bit like fighter games. I never really understood the appeal. And uh, yeah, I'm a bit kind of jaw-drop with your description of it, especially the fact that you, you spend all the time to play it twice and be 100% complete. So like, Again, like I, I am a kind of person who values um, like two kinds of things. There's the planning which will come up later so i won't elaborate on it too much and then there's uh tactile and i, I want to say dexterity but like i have no dexterity so i don't really like calling it that but like it feels good to press buttons like there's a reason people buy fancy arcade sticks for fighting games because it feels really fucking good to press some buttons and see the damage bar go brah on people in fighting games and stuff like that and I don't know. There's something about video games that because there are buttons and usually a lot of buttons, there's like this fun tactile sensation that is a part of video games that no other form of entertainment really has. And that's kind of why like movies as a video game don't really do anything for me because you're spending more time watching something that is non-interactive. Well, n not always like most of the time, but you're, you're, spending a sizable portion of the time watching something uninteractive when you could be pressing buttons and pressing buttons feels good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I understand what you say. Uh, yes, I guess that's not me. That's I should fine. also point out, like, I'm a music gamer. It kind of yes. fits. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was like... You, you we press a lot of buttons, sometimes 2,000 yes. in two minutes. Yes, yes, yes. And then you were talking about your dexterity level. I'm like, yeah, I think yours is maybe way better than mine just because you're a music player. Music for a music game player, I suck at music games. That's the thing. Yes, but for me, you're so good. That's that's always has been this way since we know each other. It's like I know. You always tell me, <laughs> oh, but you know I'm like nothing compared to all the other people. I'm like, My I skill know. hasn't evolved in like, 10 years i've plateaued yeah, yeah. really fast and unfortunately due to rsi reasons like certain games i can't really play anymore because it makes my wrists unusable <laughs> oh, i can imagine like this is just crazy okay let's move to my game number two and again it's another series so we'll have to put it this way but number two so first uh maybe to just add some notes to my first i would say this is story uh, action story-based heavy games but they are also puzzle and shooter because i can include on, on top of that uh the last of us and the tomb raider series so last of us 
it's only one game. But the Tomb Raider series, uh, I've played uh, the three since the reboot in 2013. So Tom- Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, Ashad, no, Ri- Rise of the Tomb Raider, and then Shadow of the Tomb Raider that I just completed uh, recently. Uh, those will fit with Uncharted. What I would call just story adventure game is where I want to go next, which will That's be... That's so top four of you. <laughs> I know, I know. I told you about that already. No, but... It's fine, it's fine. Go ahead. Uh, but I want to talk about the Phoenix Wright series of games. Oh. Yeah. Because I think since you introduced me to those games... Yes. I've just been obsessed with those and I realized that I haven't completed. I'm not sh- That's the funny part. So I think, let me go. So Nintendo 3DS. So there are three, four games. So there are the, the three first game were originally uh, released on the Game Boy Advance. So Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, Justice for All, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, J- Trials for the Entabulation. Oh my goodness, those names. And the fourth one, Apple Justice, Ace Attorney, which was on the Nintendo DS. I played them all on Nintendo DS. I, I should clarify that the first three were only released in Japan on the GBA. Oh, really? That's true. Yeah, they, they came to North America North America on the Nintendo DS yes. only. And then on top of that, on the 3DS one, I'm not sure I've played. Uh, so I've played. I, that's remember at the beginning I was unsure. Uh, I was saying ah, some games I wasn't sure or it was hard for me to track my progress in it. I think the Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Dual Destiny I completed, but I had no trace of it, and my save game was assuming that, so oh well. Uh, and the last one, The Spirit of Justice, I haven't played with it, so uh, and... I think you that, told me that you beat the fifth one on iOS, not on 3DS. Uh, I don't think I've bought Spirit of Justice on iOS. No, not that one, Dual Destinies. Okay, I have to look at my purchases because I do have Dual Destinies and Spirit of Justice both on 3DS and my uh, Dual Destinies game is about like 35 hours. So, oh well. Uh, and last but not least, on top on that series, uh, like I said, I will do the nine games, but maybe not uh, on specific games. But I, I would say the one that I like the most that represents this category is on the 3DS itself, if I can find my notes. I didn't document it. Oh my god, I did not document this game in Backloggery. It is the uh, Professor Layton and Phoenix Wright crossover game, which now I don't have the title in front of me. Uh, and that would be the pinnacle of this adventure base. A bit of puzzleness because of uh, a Professor Layton. Huh, it, it's strange because I don't think we've ever actually talked about this, even privately. Like, I played this game back when it was never even planned for release in North America uh, because it, it came out, like, I think four or five years earlier in Japan than it came out here, which is really strange. And I beat the whole thing, and I was like, yeah, I really like this one. And then I had no idea you had actually played it. <laughs> oh, yes, I bought the cartridge. I don't recall when. So the name is Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, yeah. which was... Uh, it was it was a collaboration between Capcom and Level Five, yeah. Uh, so they really like not only was developed by the two teams that were developing the games, but they worked together to make that. And that game is my pinnacle example of adventure-based stories. That uh, I don't know how to describe it, but let me explain what the game. So uh, Phoenix Wright, as the name suggests, is an attorney, and you go through 
puzzle solving, uh, visual level type like of games where you need to solve crime and defend people because you're a defense attorney. Uh, so people come to you, they've been, of course, you're so lucky in life and you're, they are always have been falsely accused of mainly a murder and you're always there to defend and to uh, investigate on the cases. And more or less, the Ace Attorney games are five, six games of just this. Uh, they're about 30, 35 hours, but they're so captivating. And that's what I like about them is you start the game. It's always a bit extravagant or <laughs> weird. Uh, yeah. There's without spoiling it too much. Uh, there's kind of like psychics that are working with you that have special powers uh, that helps you f- detect whether people are lying or they're hiding secrets so that help you progress into your uh, investigation mode but those games is really in two parts there's this investigation part that you need to gain clues and the more not the more clues you gain but to go through the really the court part uh, where then your job as an attorney is really to find contradiction into the witnesses and then bring the clues you found into investigation. But while the story sometimes is like, it is crazy stupid or even super weird, like why does that make sense? The way those games have been built is it never really lets you think about the weirdness of the story plot or the characters themselves because the characters are so colorful the type of people that you have as witnesses or even as clients are the most i i might make an assumption here but they're the most japanese anime they can be sometimes uh when i watch some animes they have like caricature of known celebrities or just caricature about like specific human traits but they makes the character so charming and so lovely to just see what is the next stupid thing they'll say or what is this next slide they'll do and then you'll find the objection to do uh and you just fall in love with the main characters which is phoenix right throughout those games is is acolytes and even the bad characters because the 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 um other attorneys, so the, I'm looking for the exact word for prosecutors. Yes, the prosecutors. They're like they're arch enemies, and they're always super evil because. And, and that I would say that's the part where it reminds me of some like typical like American lawyer mo- uh, uh, lawyers movie where it's like, oh, you're the like the indie uh, uh, attorney, defense attorney, and then you're working against the Goliath system with prosecutors, with the police department. There's not too much of that, but the the prosecutors' personas are a lot of that. And overall, the mix of those two modes, where you have this kind of this investigation mode and then analysis mode, because when in the court, you really need to analyze what you have as clues, what was tell, told to you as quote-unquote truth, and now you need to find those contradictions. And then really, that's where you don't realize it again that you're in a puzzle, but it is a puzzle. And that, I think, to me, is the brilliant part, and that that is the key element that makes the uh, Phoenix Rice series attractive. Again, I have limited experience with the 3DS games, what I've started to feel after four or five games is 
they're trying to reinvent the games and were not able to capture the the same magic as the first three ones. So they tried to do a couple of like game mechanics gimmicks uh, with new characters, with new like I think in the fifth one there's a, a psychologist and the she has a bullshit detector which is super funny. But <laughs> in the end it's like it's the same thing as before, right? Uh, so don't reinvent the wheel. Just like give us new stories with the same characters with the same mechanics. But I feel with those, the, maybe the small downside is uh, Capcom was a bit afraid that people will feel it's the same mechanics and not focus on writing nice stories, which is what makes those games powerful. Uh, quick note on Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright Attorney. So you have this aspect, plus this was also my first experience with Professor Layton games, which are more really a puzzle game. So you have puzzles, you progress in the storyline, and... Uh, as far as I understood, generally speaking, the Professor Layton are kind of investigation games, but to progress in the investigation, you really need to solve those puzzles. Uh, main puzzles could be like, like you have like broken pieces, like a real puzzle, you need to uh, put the jigsaw piece together, or you need to move one part through a maze. Uh, so you go back to more, um, I'd say, dumbed down or just typical maze. Uh, uh, typical puzzles and the combo of puzzles you don't really understand that are you don't feel there are puzzles with just normal puzzles and make like a, it was a great balance between making your brain thinks hard because like you still need to think about like okay how this person is thinking okay that's why they're saying this I need to follow the translation versus just like okay no uh, this moves down this is really a relaxed game when you go into the uh, professor latent mode so here for those, I think the important part is storyline versus because it's an it's an attorney simulator. Let's put it this way, uh, but big emphasis on the storyline, attachable characters, and what's that's what makes those games amazing. It's probably like if you put aside the Walking Dead games, I think it's probably one of the most popular visual novels that we've had in North America versus the Japanese market where like visual novels are mostly dating sims but there are occasionally non-dating sim ones uh, that swap the market but like here it really takes something as good as a phoenix right to actually like break out of this niche category on steam with all the pervert shit right and i do feel yeah I, you're making a good point because i do feel that all the visual novels are not only visual novels like the one we see from japan that are still niche here but that have a big not a big but a devoted fan base they're still always like visual novel dating sim or visual novel like something weird japanese and not just an adventure game yeah and that i think i think there's a lot of people like me here that just want adventure stuff so i'm not surprised that it was uh, quite popular in north america it's kind of it's kind of funny because back on the famicom there were a lot of detective games sort of similar to the investigation portion of phoenix right but they never came to North America because they were the games on the Famicom with the most text. And those games never really made it here. We had like our own things on like PCs and like the Apple II and stuff like that, but they never sort of came off of computers and onto consoles. So we never really got exposed to it until stuff like Phoenix Wright, Hotel T- Dusk, which is kind of related to that. It's uh, true. Yeah. I, same I era. Um, like those kinds of games sort of came out later and sort of 
gave us a little peek into that genre and then disappeared into obscurity again later. <laughs> yeah, but you, you saw it with uh, Phoenix Wright that um, it added success into the uh, Nintendo DS generation. Yeah. When they start to bring, continue developing this series into the future with the 3DS, uh, it's, it struggled in North America. It started to struggle in North America. Uh, the two games I mentioned, uh, are, uh, so The Old Destinies and Spirit of the Justice are 3DS downloads, except in Japan where you can get cartridges. Yeah. Uh, Phoenix Wright versus Professor Layton was a cartridge, which that was nice. I guess maybe people, like, I know, uh, Professor Layton got some, some quite uh important success here so i guess that's why they were like oh we'll make a cartridge but you saw that uh the 3ds was not ki- the, the the north the 3ds in north america was not kind to uh those games because even the rebooted games uh some of the uh games where you are the mild edgeward which is the fr- the first like persecutor you have in the first few games those games the first one on the nds uh, Nintendo DS came to North America, but super rare to find. I think I've sold it on eBay for still like fifty to sixty USDs for a used game, and wow. the second ed- edition is Japanese only and Japan only. And they've had another game on the 3DS, which is kind of a different lore, but like in, I think in like in the old age, I think in like in Renaissance, something like that, something weird. Oh yeah, the Meiji era. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember about that one because it looked boring to me but yeah i I know what you're talking about yeah it seems that they try something new they try the same concept but really with different new different characters and from what i gathered even in japan it didn't yeah it was a flop yeah and it was uh it was kind of in i don't know how to properly say it but it was in kind of old japanese old time yeah it's in the meiji era okay i don't know what means so oh well i just know the name of the era i don't know what it means either (laughs) so Okay, so a long, long time ago. We're uh, not historians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I would say if there were two games to play on this, I would say Trials and Tabulation, which is the last Phoenix Wright based games on the NDS. Uh, without spoiling too much Apple Justice, Phoenix Wright is there, but you're not playing this character. Uh, I would say Trials and Tabulation should be on game list if you. You like what I've heard, and you like you really hear my passion about this story-based game, and uh, Phoenix Wright versus Professor Layton on 3DS should give you a good picture of what those games are. Yep. I think for the next two ones, uh, you should do two games because I feel that mine are getting a bit longer because I'm combining a couple of games together. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, so my second game is Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. It was released in Ooh. 2003 for the Game Boy Advance. Before the haters send in their comments, uh, yes, I know that it is widely considered to be inferior to the original Final Fantasy Tactics. However, uh, I got the original Final Fantasy Tactics last year, and I've only played two chapters of it, so I can't really judge it yet. Uh, It's a little premature for that. Um, And Final Fantasy Tactics Advance is a a notable first for me. Uh, It sort of serves as a proxy in my list for games that reward research and planning. Uh, So examples that have come up recently on the show, Final Fantasy VIII, which we did a whole segment on at the end of the Game of the Year episode, Uh, Dark Souls, which was my Game of the Year. I really like games that let me basically like either have a notebook or a spreadsheet where I can plan stuff out for the rest of the game and work towards that plan. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance for me was the introduction to job systems uh which 
most of the RPGs that I enjoy the most have job systems in some way where you can uh, acquire various skills in different jobs and usually have some level of intermingling between jobs uh, so you can sort of complement a job that is weak in a certain thing by learning abilities from another job and so much. Uh, and it also was tactical RPGs. Uh, it was the first one I played, uh, which means that my love for games like Fire Emblem, um, the original Final Fantasy Tactics, Tactics Ogre, uh, Front Mission, all of this stuff sort of stemmed from a positive experience with Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. It was the first game I can remember where I had a notebook where I kept track of the character builds and everything I wanted my party to be able to do later in the game. I even had like, uh, there was some game facts FAQ where I was like listing the exact progression of which abilities I should learn where because they would benefit me in certain scenarios and everything. So it, it sort of served as this catalyst for all of like what I enjoy the most about RPGs more or less. And, um, I think it's popping up more recently with the exploration I'm doing on the PlayStation uh, because obviously FFT is a PlayStation game, but also sort of like what the impacts of Final Fantasy V's job system and Final Fantasy III's proto-job system have had on other RPGs of the PlayStation era is just fascinating to me. So I'm just doing a lot of research. Uh, you're reminding me of something. Um, so... If it is the first time I say that on the podcast, I'm sorry, but I'm sure I did that say that on the podcast. And I also did say that to Tony because we're having a lot of Final Fantasy discussion these days. But hmm. uh, do you recall when I said that Final Fantasy VII was the first Final, Final Fantasy game I've ever played in my life? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with your description and then now Googling, I kind of realized I was wrong. A long, long time ago, uh, a friend uh, lended me their game, their cartridge of game uh, of Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, and now I'm looking at screenshot and I recall playing that game. I forgot if I liked it. I think I did a bit, but grew tired of it. Uh, wait, wait, wait! I, I think we actually brought this up on the podcast. I think, I think we did. You mentioned either playing FFT or FFT two. At some point, but and yeah. Now, but now looking at it, I I'm sure it was not on a DS. I have the the Wikipedia page in front of me, and no, it okay. was really Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. And that might be neat last week that I said that, but uh, in our original episode about Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. But I had the same conversation that we had on the podcast with Tony <laughs> literally in the past week, so that's why I might be confused. Okay. Uh, but yes, uh, I can understand why you like this game. Uh, one of the things, and I've encountered that recently, is it reminds me of the first South Park game, which is uh, which was on the PS3, but I played it on the PS4. Is South Park: The Stick of Truth, uh, which, if I recall, tactics right? Certain characters are like uh, cheese chess pieces, where they only move into a certain direction, and you do the maths and all of that fun stuff. Right. Yeah, 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 and I'm bad at those games. Oh man, I'm, I, <laughs> I I don't know why. And even to, to, when I was playing the South Park, the first South Park game, which is like this, both South Park games like that. There are RPGs where they also have this tactics element, uh, more or less chess. Tony was looking at me, he's like, "You would suck at chess." I'm like, "Yeah, I know," because I also suck at chess, which is amazing. He would look at my moves and be like, "That was not a good move to do." I'm like, "I know. <laughs> Who cares? Well, like, just power through it," which is what I usually end up doing. So for games that 
can still be our tactics RPG, but rewards, powering through it, I'm okay because I powered through it and everything is fine. Uh, if I recall correctly with tactics, it doesn't reward powering through it. You need to really use tactics to do it. And that's kind of why I grew uh, really kind of not didn't like it, but I just dropped it. And from what I understand, the American version of Final Fantasy Tactics is similar to this. It is extremely punishing if you're just trying to brute force it, uh, which is not going to be great for me. I think the Japanese version is easier for some reason that I don't quite remember something like that. And I'm playing through the Japanese version, so I guess I'm okay. (laughs) But yeah, I've heard some very, not necessarily negative, but like, the games are very punishing in general. And FFTA, I don't think is that punishing relative to the entire genre. But it if it's your first one, I can see difficulty there. And now I recall it was my first one. And one of the things that pops out, just a mechanic that is like extra annoying about FFTA that I don't think is in the original FFT, or at least not yet uh, of what I've played, is the judge system, where at the beginning of each game, there's this judge that flies onto the map, and it tells you, like, gives you, like, one or two rules that you have to follow for the entire thing. If you break the rule, you get a yellow card, and your character is suspended for, like, the next three fights or whatever, which fucking sucks. Like, I think that's why people hate FFT is because they did, uh, FFTA is because they didn't want to listen to the judge rules, and they kept getting all of their characters penalized, and I think you have to pay for them to get out of uh, suspension or whatever, and people were just angry, but, like, if you compare to the other uh, strategy RPG that was popular at the time which was the original Fire Emblem the difference is in the original Fire Emblem when your character dies he's gone you don't get him back uh, so I vastly prefer the FFTA system of suspended for a couple of games if you don't respect the rules to your character is dead you lose them forever <laughs> wow no but this uh, judge thing kind of rings a bell so yeah the more we talk about it and with it being on your list it kind of reminds me yeah I played that game and again not my games. And this is not an endorsement of the judge mechanic. I don't like it either. It's okay. Just, it's not as bad as Effie. F- <laughs> um, okay, n- next game on my list. This is one that you were probably surprised wasn't higher in the list, but these are out of order, so whatever. Uh, Dance Dance Revolution Extreme, uh, released in 2002 for arcade and PS2. This was my introduction to music games. DDR is one of the rare forms of exercise that I am actually excited about doing, uh, which I think is common to a lot of people who play DDR. Um, That era of DDR, uh, specifically Fifth Mixed Extreme, is pretty much peak of DDR for me. If people were fans of the game back then, uh, after 2002, there was a long uh, four-year gap between games and many people like theorize like oh ddr is dead now like they they didn't they made the best version of ddr and now this can never be topped so they just stopped making them uh unfortunately that is not what happened uh unfortunately after four years they made more ddr games and the first one after they came back was okay but unfortunately the arcade cabinets that accompanied it were problematic for various reasons and then they sort of went downhill, 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 downhill. Then in uh, 2013, Konami announced, oh, uh, we're not doing versions anymore. We're just calling this Dance Dance Revolution. We're, we're going to put out online updates every couple of weeks. And they did that for like three weeks. And then they said like, maybe we'll give you updates once every three months. <laughs> and then they sort of stopped doing updates. 
And then people complained really fucking loud, and then they made DDR Ace, which is a new version of DDR. I thought they weren't doing versions anymore, but sure. Okay, they did another one. And now they're sort of repeating that cycle again. So God knows what the fuck is going on with DDR. Uh, It is not great uh, nowadays. Uh, For a period of time, they were literally taking charts from other music games and just converting them via a script into DDR charts, which gave terrible DDR charts. But that's what we had for like three years. (laughs) It was pretty shitty. Uh, so I wish they had ended with extreme and just said, this is the best DDR will ever be and leave it at that. Um, what's hilarious is extreme is probably the most widespread version of DDR in North America. Well, outside of the U S because the other ones had network functionality that required an official relationship with Konami. Whereas a lot of the extremes you see out in the wild right now are bootlegs in various forms. Like here, it's really easy to access the best version of DDR, well, best according to me. Uh, but you go to Japan, and for them, it's like a special event if they find a DDR Extreme cab, which is really weird. Uh, you have like all of these new versions of DDR everywhere, and then they're like, Extreme, holy shit, I only get to play this like once every six months. Uh, so, and unfortunately, uh, Eternal uh, Amusement Tower, which I mentioned earlier in the arcade closures section, uh, they had a rotating DDR cab where they would every month change the version or no, it's every two weeks. I think they would change the version that was there, which means I got to experience a bunch of really old versions of DDR that I would never get to play otherwise, because I went during a period where they had a certain version in rotation. Uh, I got to play fifth mix, which is one of my favorite in theory, musically uh, versions of DDR. Uh, But that was way before I even played DDR. Uh, But I got to play it because they had it on rotation there, which unfortunately is gone now. Um, but this game is not only here because DDR is great. If I'm being perfectly honest, like, first of all, this is the only music game on my list. It is not my favorite music game. Oh, that, that I'm surprised. It is really the only music game on your list. It is the only music game on my list because I have other shit I have to cover, uh, across the spectrum (laughs) of games that I like. And this is the one that started it for me, but it is not the one I enjoy most right now. Um, the one one I enjoy most right now is Tunism, which I can only play when I'm in Japan, which is kind of shitty, but whatever. Uh, I deal with it. And uh, like I've probably played more Beat Mania 2DX in general, the entire series, than I have of DDR. Um, and it has been hugely influential to my life. But DDR Extreme is really the life changer for me because so much of my social life today and so much of the influences that I've had in my life comes from music gaming community members that I would never have met if I had never played DDR Extreme. So this game is not only on this list because of the impact this has had on my appreciation of exercise and my appreciation of the genre, but also for the entire group of people that came along with uh, joining that community. And honestly, my life would be pretty different if I didn't have uh, that DDR Extreme cabin show in again that had been like my first exposure to music games. Nice. I, you know what? I do feel that, especially DDR, because as you mentioned, it is maybe one of those. I think it is the emblematic Japanese music game that we've seen here in North America. It's uh, the most common one, yeah. Oh, I would, I would say that like compared to all the other ones, like this one is like 99% of viewership here, and then the other ones are like 0.1%. I know I've seen a lot of them through you, right? Uh, because yeah. you've imported a lot of them here. But the other ones, they're like super rare. And then we have this like mid 2000s era where all the American like video games company did their own versions of those games with rock band, guitar, all of that fun stuff that initialized from Japan, but kind of because 
quote unquote Americanized. So yeah. I, I feel that when we will reminisce about those games in 20 years, that those are going to be a moment in time. And I like that you put that on your list. Yeah. And also one of the things that is very interesting about DDR as a series in general is that currently it is the only series in all of the uh, Konami music games that foreign participants can participate in the yearly Konami arcade championship. And America is rocking it hard. Uh, I mean, for a really long time, because DDR was sort of the only thing most people had access to, it was the de facto music game in arcades for people who like music games. And that means Americans got really fucking good at DDR, especially during that four-year gap when people stopped playing DDR in Japan because there was no new versions. <laughs> we were still getting new machines. So that means the best players in the world are from North America, and they wow. are winning the tournament every year. I didn't know that. So every year uh, during the Konami Arcade Championship, I usually watch it anyway because I like the other games too. But uh, DDR is just really fucking hype because a whole bunch of people, mostly people who work at Apple, uh, fly from California to Japan to go watch their favorite players play uh, and encourage their friends. And the, those of us who don't work at Apple stay at home and watch it from home. And uh, yeah, it's... It's pretty nice to have like people to cheer for that are friends or friends of friends uh, who are among the best in the world at DDR. Uh, and it's just another angle to that community thing that I jammed in there. I'm eager to see if we'll see some kind of, I guess, renaissance of DDR itself, like the concept of like a dance game, dance music game from some of uh, North American companies that are kind of like reminiscent of those games from I mean Just Dance ago. is still huge it's still coming out on the original Wii Just Dance 2020 is coming out that's, on the original Wii I don't know on the original Wii that's true that Just Dance is quite big I agree it didn't you. even come out on Wii U it only came out on the original Wii wow I forgot about this but yeah that's true that Just Dance is still big hmm okay was that it I know I kind of prolonged this a bit yeah you can move on to your next game perfect so for my next game, again, another series of games, of course. I think I, I think I should have told you that already, that most of it is that kind of genre slash series of games. I kind of figured it out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so for the next one, the car guy and me has to mention those because... Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> those games literally influence most of my video game time in my youth. I think this is our overlap. I, I'm... I wouldn't be surprised that this is the only overlap we have, but I would say, I say series, but this one needs to be won by Gran Turismo 4 on the PS2. Oh, see, I wrote Gran Turismo 2 on my list, not because it's my favorite one, but because it's the first one I played. That's my problem right now. I don't recall ever playing one. Uh, I think... I played it. It's actually pretty good. Yeah, you've sent me screenshot recently. Or was yeah. that for two? No, that was from... Uh, last recording, I sent you screenshots of two, but I've beaten the arcade mode in Gran Turismo 1. Okay. So, uh, if you recall some of my previous, our previous episodes on this topic, uh, I did mention that I never really owned a PS1. We only rented a PS1. Uh, and for sure, uh, Gran Turismo games... Sorry, my memory, my memory is a bit fuzzy about that time... Grand Turismo games were always a constant when we were renting a PS1. Up until we got a PS2. And then I remember that my parents bought us, my brother and I, Grand Turismo 3, 
which I dislike so much. <laughs> so that's why I remember I played Gran Turismo 2 because I remember complaining so much that Gran Turismo 3 sucked compared to Gran Turismo 2. And to this day, I don't really remember why. So that's fun. I really need to revisit Gran Turismo 2 to remind me why did I, I disliked it so much when I was young. If I'm being perfectly honest, Gran Turismo 3 is actually just Gran Turismo 2 in 480p with different menus the game is fundamentally the same hmm. and it makes sense because i think there's just a year separating the two games huh okay that makes sense but i have a strange memory of it feeling that there was less content in three than two i mean maybe it's just the way it's presented in the menus could but be. Like, i mean like it's not could be it, it, it's not a super impressive thing when you're coming from 2 because it's so similar to what you have in 2 and it's not as huge of an improvement as 4 is. Yeah, and could have been because then they announced like a couple of years after they announced 4 and 4 was just a big leap on top of this and I spent so much time. So of course, uh, as a car person, I do enjoy cars and I do enjoy car games. But even in my early year... I did realize that there's car arcade games and there are car simulator games. And I would even say nowadays there's even car professional simulator games. I think uh, yeah. iRacing, Assetta Corsa. Assetta Corsa and... uh, there's the one I for- I've tried to play on the PS4. Uh, Project Cars. Uh, yeah. Project Cars 1, which that one, the game was not really well optimized for a controller. Uh, sadly, I'd never bought a racing or a racing wheel, uh, and that one really sucked with a controller. Uh, but I've heard great comments with people that have like quite like a seat and pedals and the wheel. Uh, that the project car was also great. What I always liked about Gran Turismo, it, it was the perfect car, or as like the close to perfection car simulation, while still keeping the fact that hey, you're a teenager or a kid controlling a car with a controller not the wheel though you could have wheel setup which one day i would like to explore i think now not not i'm an adult that has a job and can pay with the, for his own things uh spending th- isn't it great <laughs> yes and spending 300 dollars on the wheels like uh, okay yeah sure you don't have parents complaining about you spending 300 dollars about on the wheel but uh one day especially right now maybe with the space but to me, they always felt that they were the pinnacle of sim- like car simulation on consoles. Yes, you could always have better on the PC, but if you want the best, not for the cheapest, but the 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 best value and the best simulation, Gran Turismo was always there. And five and six on the PS3 was were good. Uh, they were, I think, evolutions of 4, which 4 was a big revolution, was a big change, lots of contents, lots of cars, lots of uh, arcade, lots of uh, content in the career mode. I think it also the one, it was the first game that introduced B-Spec or it was in yeah. country. Yeah. The big addition was B-Spec where you would just more or less be the kind of the, the, the race director or I forgot the name, but the you have your driving, your, your, your racing you're team. you're the driving coach. Yeah, you're the, yes, exactly. The people in the sta- in the pits that are telling the drivers like, oh, be more aggressive. Oh, the sky is coming soon. That was your job. And that was, uh, I think, that was quite innovative at that time. I think nowadays I would like this mode more than I did before. 
but the problem is I would have the time to spend on it. On the PS3, it has a nice feature where you can lend your pilots to other friends, so they would race at the same time as your friends and then gain points and gain experience, which was a nice feature. Do you remember the sleep mode thing? Isn't it what I just described? No. you. Well, you could do the thing where... um like your drivers were available and your friends could do it. The other thing you could do is there was this online mode you could do where you could put your PS3 in a special sleep mode and you could log on to grandturismo.com and you could do B-Spec races from anywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recall about... Yes, I think I... And I'm so pissed that, like, in the smartphone world we live in now... This has not come back in any Gran Turismo game since they did that. It was in Gran Turismo 5. They didn't put it in 6, and they never put it in Sport because Sport doesn't have V-Spec. Yeah. Yeah, when we... I guess we can go back to your episode about Gran Turismo Sport and our yeah, opinion about if, it. If you can put up with the audio of that episode, we said a lot of things during that episode about uh, GT true. that are valuable. That's true. That was one moment where we wanted to do some kind of Twitch streaming on this podcast. That was a fun experience. Yeah. Experiment. But yes, uh, and that always has been my point. So I've never been an Xbox person. I know a lot of people will say the exact same thing I said about Gran Turismo about, oh my goodness, why am I blanking about the name now? Forza Motorsports. Forza Motorsports. And Forza Motorsports only because Forza Horizon will be more like Burnout, like more like car arcade-y. And it's actually derivative of Project Gotham Racing, which was the ah. other racing game on Xbox until they bought the studio and rebranded it to Forza. Mm, I see, I see. And I'm sure you can say the exact same thing. I've seen a lot of the good things about Forza, but to me, the best car simulator on consoles, and I would say even on budget-level PC, is still Gran Turismo. Even if I quite dislike the uh, online-ness of Gran Turismo Sport, its simulation mode was amazing. Uh, the fact, the things that they can do, the the polishness that they do on this makes it for an amazing simulate, like racing simulation game. And while it is only about big circuit around the world, one day I do hope or do wish that I can maybe go drive on the Nordschleife on the Nurburgring and compare because from a lot of people they say like. Don't play too much of the game before you go play. It's not the same thing. This The, the Nordschleifer is like crazy. But what you'll see is like some of the games, they simulate like the layout and the divination that you can't feel in your living room. But the look of it when you see it, you'll be like, oh, I remember this. I remember that. I remember this. Not as much as a racing driver, but you'll get the cues. And that to me shows though that Grand Turismo as a game is doing great on simulation. So yeah, uh, throughout this kind of quarantine time, I'm kind of thinking that I maybe want to spend some more time now that uh, I've heard that uh, Gran, Turismo's, Gran Turismo Sports career mode is getting better and kind of reminiscing of Gran Turismo 5 and 6 and even a bit of 4. But yeah, I'm not so sure I will do. Though I've seen, I was talking with uh, about it with my brother recently, it's like literally $20 Canadian. So it's uber, uber cheap. And I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not surprised why. I'm like, I don't. I think a lot of people were disappointed, like I am, uh, and are reminiscing of a kind of a Gran Turismo six and five and four, and they want a proper Gran Turismo seven, quote unquote. We were just talking about this on Twitter the other day. Uh, I have a couple of things I just want to bring out about Gran Turismo two, since I was going to have it on my list anyway. Uh, so th- this was an actually a bigger first for me than I thought. 
it's the first 3D console game I remember playing at all, which is madness. It's the first PlayStation game I remember playing, also kind of madness. Uh, I played it at the Shawinigan Summer Festival in the year 2000. I don't remember why I remember this, but there was a big booth uh, <laughs> with a bunch of demo stations, and I played license tests in Gran Turismo, and I was like, this is fucking weird. I love it. <laughs> oh, yes. And I remembered the UI music and the UI sounds, and uh, eventually, like a couple weeks or a month later, we went to go rent a game at a family member's house, and they had a PlayStation, so I rented Gran Turismo 2, and I was like, this is it this is it it's the same sounds that i remember so uh polyphony digital good job on the ui uh also one of the things that i find like it left a timeless mark on people of our generation is that simulation mode created emotional bonds between kids who never cared about cars before and real life vehicles they managed to make us feel about inanimate objects uh which is something that a lot of video games about robots recently have been trying to do and have failed at um because of the realism of the game Cars all felt kind of different from each other in realistic ways, and you could have opinions about what kinds of cars that you love driving, which are the four-wheel drive ones, and the ones that you don't like driving, which are the ones that are not four-wheel drive. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Wow. And really, it's like, it's not an RPG, but the cars are characters in your journey to become the best car driver in the GT World League. And you become attached to certain cars like you become attached to characters. And they're little quirks, and you know exactly how to oversteer or understeer in these places. And it, I don't know. It's brilliant. It's a great game. I'm playing through it again, in case it's not clear, because I love it. And, yeah, it, it's not the best Gran Turismo game. I, will, it's, I honestly think 4 will never be topped, ever. It, it's too good and the level of fidelity that they are aiming for in modern consoles they'll never be able to do anything equal to four at that level of quality not without killing every member of their staff in the process anyway i strongly agree with you because the level of polish that the simulation of cars that they have in even in sport and you saw that the number of cars yes evolve in the past two years since the two three years since the release because they always but at, you I think you were saying to me that it takes like 300 hours to scan, like laser scan a car to put it yeah, in the game. Yeah, it's ridiculous how much time, like how many man hours it takes per vehicle is insane. Yeah, so we cannot have, end up with like a thousand cars like GT4. Yeah. So uh, Gran Turismo 4 is, for me is probably going to be like, if we had to do a top 10 games of all time, which this list is, is not really, uh, it would definitely be on that list. Oh, totally agree but, with you. Gran Turismo 2 for me is the one that started it all, and that's why it's on my list. Do you want me to go to my next game? Uh, oh, crap. I had the last point about Gran Turismo that I wanted to make, oh. and I forgot. Oh! oh, well. Gran Turismo, you're amazing. It's awesome. Play it. It's oh, great. yes. Sorry about that. I would say, uh, especially, I wanted to add a comment about your note of kids uh making a relationship uh, like associating with cars even if they cannot drive for north americans that are about i would say 20 to 40 <laughs> this games though this series of game have introduced them and can be literally the main reason of the main driving factor of their love of japanese car and if you mm-hmm. literally go to like auction site and you see a skyline and then like a R32, R33, R34, and you see that they are asking like 80, 70, I forgot the numbers, but like really high numbers, 
even in, in USDs, you need to quote unquote thank Gran Turismo because this generation of North Americans were introduced or multiple generation no no generation yes of North Americans were introduced to weird Japanese cars and amazing 90s Japanese cars via this these games yeah a great person to follow on Twitter about this is Chibitech Chibitech is a chiptune artist who lives in Japan but she grew up I think in California uh, and she played Gran Turismo too when she was younger. And now that she lives in Japan, she is renting these cars oh, from yes. her youth. She did a whole thread about wh- why the Honda Prelude is such a weird car. Uh, <laughs> yes, she I also rented an R34 Skyline. Uh, she has a bunch of crazy car rental stories that all stemmed from playing Gran Turismo and falling in love with these cars. And I think like, like it's the running gag on the show that I love the, Shib- uh, the Shibuya Impreza. Yeah, the Subaru Impreza. And it's because it's so fucking good in Gran Turismo 4. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you send me that thread about uh, her renting her R34 and just like comparing with her childhood memories of Gran Turismo games, like, oh, so jealous. She's living the dream. <laughs> oh, literally, literally. Yeah. So I'll try to find those links and put them in the show notes. Perfect. Uh, let's move to your game number five, if I recall my number. Uh, or that's six because of yes. Gran Turismo? No, it's five because of Gran Turismo. Oh, okay, perfect. So my next game is Mushihime-sama, uh, which is a 2004 arcade, PS2, iOS, Xbox 360, and PC game. It is a game by Cave, which makes very hard arcade bullet hell shooters. Uh, so it's not going to be on Nukadivia's list. <laughs> and uh, the reason it's on my list is because of its ha- hangoutitude. Uh, what is very weird and very dissonant about this game, but something I actually love to bits, is that you've got on this hand that it is a bullet hell shooter that is incredibly fucking hard. And on the other hand, it has this absolutely serene, chill vibe that doesn't fit at all with the amount of bullets that are on screen at the same time. It is kind of crazy that they made this game in the first place, but I love it. Um, the aesthetic and the mood of this game is so good that it doesn't matter that I consistently die on stage three every single time I play on a platform that is an iOS. Uh, it softens the blow, and it's just like a good... It puts you in like a focus mode, and you focus on the game, and if you don't get it, you just want to put another coin in the machine and try again, and try again, and try again. If I had been a salaryman 16 years ago when this game was out in arcades, I, this would be the game I would play every night coming home uh, at the arcade, well, putting aside music games. Uh, I would play a credit every night after work, and work towards beating it, and unfortunately, like, the problem is, I don't have a 360, uh, which is where the previously best port was. was. Now the uh, best port is on PC, uh, but I don't have a PC either, and I don't really want one either. Um, So that leaves iOS, which I have beaten every difficulty except for the hardest one on iOS. Uh, But the problem is the touchscreen makes the game too easy. Uh, So that's kind of a problem. And then the PS2 version... Uh, I could buy it, except it's like $80, and also right now my PS2 no longer decides to play imports, and it's only available as an import game. Uh, so if anybody has a Mushihime-sama PCB uh, for the arcade version that they want to send me with an arcade cabinet, I will gladly accept it. Uh, <laughs> okay, I-, I like that you start with a PCB, then with a cabinet, that's all. Well, you need the PCB and the cabinet, or, or you can get me a super gun too. It'll only cost you like $350 to get me a thing that I can hook up to a PCB and put it on an HDMI display. Um 
So if you're made of money, please send me all of that stuff. You can find my contact info at the end of the show. Uh, but uh, I'm about to say, is, is it where we plug our newly created <laughs> Patreon because he wants to send all the money to us? Send things to our P.O. box. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, this game is awesome. The unfortunate thing is like, Right now, I can't have any port of it. And I think even the iOS version died with um, 64-bit oh, no. falling off. So right now, I have no way to play it. Uh, I, there, unfortunately, are fewer and fewer arcades in Japan where this game is playable. There previously used to be one near Yokohama Station at Pacific Yard. And I used to, uh, when I was going to hang out with people, I used to wait there and play as I was waiting for my friends to show up at the station. Uh, it is no longer there. Um, so now I play Tetris Grandmaster instead. Uh, but yeah, I love this game to bits. Uh, I am looking forward to someday having a version of it in my house. But until then, uh, I have to dream to go back to Japan someday and play it again. That's it. Okay, let's go to the next one because I realized I did three categories. So it should be around six or seven before we move to me. All right. Uh, next one frequent topic of the show is super mario 3d land 2011 release on the 3ds uh and this is here for games that innovate while remaining true to the franchise um nintendo mostly tries to avoid releasing games in their franchises that don't innovate in any way on over their previous entries and sometimes that frustrates fans because if you look at for example star fox zero star fox zero innovated where there was no innovation needed it was a gimmick game to sell the wii u gamepad and it failed catastrophically at those things, which means that Star Fox fans were really fucking pissed. Uh, especially that it took like three years because the game kept getting delayed because it was not fun. And surprise, they shipped it and it was still not fun. Uh, so sometimes innovation shouldn't mean reinvention. And unfortunately, once again, the example that comes up a lot on the show, uh, when Mario moved into the 3D space, there was plenty of room in game design to experiment with a 3D Mario game that follows the same design rules as a 2D Mario entry, but Nintendo said no, and they didn't go in that direction. Uh, and in my opinion, Super Mario 64 and subsequent 3D Mario games lost a lot of the defining elements of what made Mario games different from other platformers. And Super Mario 3D Land and 3D World on the Wii U are the two 3D Mario games that apply the structure and design goals of 2D Mario games to a 3D Mario engine. And that means that it's like the two 3D Mario games that I find playable uh, because they feel like Mario games. And the other ones feel like, okay, 3D platformers from other franchises that have a Mario skin on them. They're still fine games. They're just not what I look for in a Mario game. And I think it's pretty cool that uh, Nintendo eventually actually like went back and said like, okay, but what if we had stuck with those design goals? Because a lot of companies, they just say, now nah, we've reinvented ourselves. We're done with the past and fuck those games. Uh, and Nintendo, for whatever reason, decided we're going to look back at these ideas and say, is there a way we can spice up the 3D Mario formula by using the old design goals? And it turns out that amongst snobby gamers, 3D Land and 3D World are the best games. So there you go. Uh, if you if you like 64, you might not be snobby enough. Wow. Again, my poor N64. Though I would like to mention, I I would like to agree with you that uh, 3D Land, I didn't play 3D Land, but 3D World was quite nice on the Wii U. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. Though overall, I'm a bigger fan of Nintendo uh, Mario 3D games. Uh, I think the last 2D game I played is Paper Mario. I think on the DS. That 
doesn't really count because it's more of an RPG than a Mario game. Right. It's the evolution to Super Mario RPG. It's not really a Mario platformer. Right, which it, I mainly mention it because of the 2D elements, more or less. Right. Uh, but yeah, while I loved uh, Odyssey, uh, I do feel that I, after finishing the game, I I was left with uh, not a bad taste in my mouth, but more like I want more of this game. I feel it was a bit short. Um, not too gimmicky on some, like, even if I really enjoy Mario Galaxy, we can say that Mario Galaxy was quite gimmicky too. Super Mario Galaxy. Uh, but yeah, I would say that I would put it, you know you would dislike it, but I would put it on par with my love of Super Mario 64. I know. Okay, if I counted correctly, you've done six games. Uh, What? Hang on. One... Two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I was counting up to ten, and I just realized, no, it's a top nine list. Right. So. You decided to do top nine, by the way. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> I just forgot. So uh, I've done, I guess, three of the four categories slash series I want to mention. And I'll, the next one could be separated into two, so I will separate it into two. Usually, I'm not a big fan of shooter games, but... What I realized recently is there's two categories that I will enjoy. So, of course, you can say that Uncharted, Last of Us, they're shooter games, right? But the story around it makes it work with that. I quite realize that I always am fascinated, and that's my next category, on, like, survivor shooter or zombie shooters. And here, we'll co- what comes into mind is Resident Evil 4, which was released on the PS2, which I think I've played on the PS2, maybe even on the on a lot of consoles. I think I've played... It was originally a GameCube game, actually. Oh, really? It was first released on GameCube? I thought it was PS2 first. No, there was a PS2 port eventually, or maybe they came out at the same time, but this was the period of the time where uh, Capcom had re-released all of the... Uh, like, Resident Evil 0 and 1 were ported were remade on GameCube, and then they did the ports of 2, 3, and maybe Code Veronica on GameCube. Mm. And they were, like, fully in on GameCube, Capcom was, so, yeah. Right. So, uh, after 4, I played 5, 6. I didn't play the uh, the more recent one after 6. Uh, 5 and 6, I recall that I played them on PS3. Not really recall the story. That's more or less what I have to say. But I think what is defining of 4 is while frustrating at moments, this game's mastered the you do your next move or you do the, to go to the next point in the story and then the story is like, nope, sucks to be you, go to this place. And then you move and then you kill zombies and then you get scared because they just jump in front of your fucking face and even if this game is like a 480p game, it still like scares the shit out of me to this day. Because of the way the cutscenes are made and some like like just monster jumping on you, like it is scary as shit. And I am usually not a big scary, like I'm not really a big fan of horror movies. I really dislike the feeling it creates in your body. But the thrill moments in Resident Evil Four are just like magic. Uh, <laughs> I say that while still be like, <gasps> uh, and. I think in the end, though, uh, I think that's maybe why I enjoy a bit more 5 and 6. Because I do feel that after a certain moment in Force, like, you go this, now you go there, and then no, you, and you just, like, 
went through the fucking old map like th- 10 times and then it's like oh no you still have other shit to do for the like the ex- the storyline is quite long uh to achieve but in the end i do feel i do feel it is the pinnacle of zombie shooter games uh in the recent years uh, recent years with all the remakes i guess that also goes into uh our discussion about Final Fantasy VII Remake, but there's uh, some, I think they're, they just remade two, and they're remaking two and three. three, right? And I'm quite eager to... Three just came out yeah. a couple of weeks ago. But the one I'm referring to is, seems that I could really enjoy Resident Evil 2, especially what I've seen from the remake. You still get this thrill level that is manageable for enough for me to not literally die after five minutes of playing, and I'm not needing die as a character like Leon, I'm playing. No, I mean, literally die. Uh, because sometimes when the thrill level is too high, I'm like just too stressed and that's not good for me. Um, but yeah, I, it feels that it has good enough and then always enough progression and enough storyline just to go through it and be captivated by those weird world where zombie exists and why they exist and why you sent to do this. And you also have to uh try to not brute force your gateway in because you will run out of ammo and I'm like oh fuck I need to find ammo and I need to craft things a bit uh that more on the recent games uh but yeah always kind of this thrill of oh, I'm running out of ammo and then I have 10,000 zombies running at to me uh that I love quite a lot and I felt through the years that the fact that it is zombies is better on my feeling about general shooting games because they're creatures and not even if you could say that they're like humanoid people that got transformed because they were attacked by parasites or something like that versus more of the typical shooter game that you can see playing uh but more on that later yeah like (laughs) resident evil 4 does a really good job of camouflaging that it's essentially a game where you shoot a bunch of brown people unlike a lot of other games that, that came out around the same time. That is a fair point. That is a fair point. A lot of the zombies are non-white. Yes. Um, I think that was one of the major critiquing points that people had at the time it was released. Um, I, I'm going to interest, insert a couple of things. First of all, uh, fun fact about the Resident Evil series, there's one of the side games that opens with a cruise ship and a pandemic and everybody turns into zombies. <laughs> Make what you will of that. Oh my goodness. Second of all, <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of people in Japan noticed that right away. Um, and so yeah, ne- next thing on my list is um, I mentioned when I was doing the whole year of PlayStation thing that I had this list of 77 PlayStation games uh, from some compilation video on YouTube uh, where I basically was like, all of these games look kind of interesting so i might as well collect them all and i'm very close to having like two-thirds of that list right now but the ones that are left are like the horror games and the really long visual novels that i don't have time to play uh so the really long visual novels that i don't have time to play like pretty understandable why i'm not super into that especially some of them are rare and it's like do i really want to spend like 70 dollars for a rare visual novel that is going to take me 70 hours to beat that i might not even like no thanks i don't know it's a tough proposition uh but the horror games it's like am i going to be able to like put up with resident evil 1 2 or 3 i'm not sure like i've seen the silent hill movie i think i could probably take silent hill Resident Evil 1, 2, or 3, I don't know enough about them to know if I'm going to be able to do it. But what if what I've seen of the remakes are 
uh, indicative of what's going to happen? I'm not sure I can. So that's sort of where I fall <laughs> in with the Resident Evil stuff. Like, I think Resident Evil 1 looks really stupid. Like, if you look at it nowadays and how it looks visually, like, it looks so fucking dumb. <laughs> compared to like modern zombie games it looks like how can anyone really be scared by this but i i feel like that those are famous last words and now i'm going to regret it if i ever play resident evil one um but that's uh, the unfortunate reality is it doesn't matter what i think about resident evil games because ems shipping has been shut down outside of japan which means only surface level shipping is available out of japan right now and it means it'll take like four months for me to get playstation games now so i'm not buying any games um but maybe eventually i'll buy resident evil once all of this shit is over I literally don't understand people that are capable of playing the Resident Evil VR game. I like, like, <laughs> it boggles my mind. I'm like, how don't you just try an art attack? Literally. Yeah, and from what I've heard, like, if you can play it in VR, it is probably one of the most scary and also most well-reviewed Resident Evil experiences. Oh my goodness, I cannot play this game. I absolutely don't want to play it, though. Yeah, yeah me neither. I look at the non-VR footage and I'm like, no thanks. <laughs> but again, I, I say that with a lot of Resident Evil game, and I'm always drawn to them. Back. Like again, I haven't really played two and three, but when I saw the the remake, I was like, huh, time to maybe I haven't bought them, but maybe time to revisit some of this uh, old history of Resident Evil game that I've never played because they look amazing and they look fun to play, but then I'll be scared as shit. I think we should both play, like, maybe for an episode, Resident Evil 1 on PlayStation 1, the original version, and see what we think. Because that lo that looks like it would be the least scary one, just because the graphics are shit. Yeah, that could be a good one, just because the graphics are shit. Worst case, is just really funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move to your number seven. Right. Uh, Pokemon Gold, released Ooh. in 1999 in Japan, 2000 in North America for the original Game Boy and Game Boy Color. Um, this here is the representative of what I like to call unicorn sequels, uh, which are sequels that are so good that they effectively define the entire series. Now, this is going to be a controversial, ex ex uh, what am I saying? A, co a controversial statement because a lot of people feel very, very attached to the first generation mm -hmm. Pokemon Hello. games. Hello, I'm here. Yes, I know. I'm speaking about you, but also <laughs> a bunch of other people. But... I think part of that love is defined by the fact that very many of us, when we were the age to play Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow, did not really play any other Game Boy RPG at the time. If you've played any other Game Boy RPGs at the time, Red, Blue, Yellow are indistinguishable from other Game Boy RPGs at the time. There is, like, you could put screenshots of Pokemon next to, like, half the Game Boy RPGs that were out, and you would not be able to tell the difference, except for, like, if you remember exactly what the sprite set of Pokemon's buildings look like. They look exactly the same as everything. They play mostly the same as all the other RPGs. There is very little that is distinguishable from other Game Boy RPGs. The player fantasy around the games from the Red, Blue, Yellow era didn't really get carried by the game itself. It got carried by the other media in the franchise, especially the anime and the trading card game. Because that's what the other Game Boy RPGs didn't have. And this is what made Pokemon special. Is like the drawing of Pikachu in red, blue, well, red and blue, not yellow so much because they changed it. 
but the graphics of Pikachu in red and blue barely looks like what the Pikachu looks like in the anime. And everybody <laughs> remembers the Pikachu in the anime. Nobody remembers the fucking ugly sprite oh, no, from I red do. and blue. I can tell you I do. Well, okay, you do because it's like it's such a jarring comparison. But it's like I don't think the game represents most of what we remember in our head as Pokemon. We remember the images from the other media, which informed what we were seeing in the game through our imagination. Gold, silver, crystal is where the games crossed the threshold and the aesthetic of the game and the world building, especially if you were playing on Game Boy Color, uh, were the things that pushed the game so that it could finally get your imagination going on its own. And then the show and the trading card game could sort of take the backseat to the game for a while. And the amazing thing about Pokemon Gold is it's kind of like Gran Turismo 4. It's not just a game with high quality content, but it's an absolute abundance of high quality content to a level that no other Pokemon game can really match at all, except for the DS remake of Gold Silver, which like explains everything I have to say. Uh, like if you ask most hardcore Pokemon fans, they will say that uh, Heart Gold and Soul Silver are the best Pokemon games ever released. And there is so much shit in Pokemon Gold that there are probably things that I could mention to you right now that you had no idea were in the game because there were things that were just like hidden secrets. Like, did you know that if you had a Game Boy Color and you use the infrared port on the Game Boy Color to mystery gift with a friend, there is a very specific building where you can talk to an NPC and fight your friend offline. Fight your friend offline? The friend's party is saved when you mystery gift with them over the infrared port and you can fight your friends anytime. Huh. So if you ignore the fact that the batteries in gold, silver, and crystal carts were the fastest to die of all of the Game Boy <laughs> games released, which means that your save is probably gone, there might be people out there with saves on their Game Boys that have ghosts of friends from like 20 years ago, and they can fight them now if their save battery is still alive, which again, tough chance. But still, like, it, there's a bunch of little stuff like this, which are like tiny Easter eggs, which when you think about it, like, synchronizing shit over the infrared port like that doesn't seem like an easy easter egg to add but they did it and it's there and it's amazing and there is a ton of stuff like this uh, you ha you can't forget gold silver crystal like you play through the main story once spoiler alert for a 20 year old game <laughs> then you play the entire basic campaign of red blue yellow again in gold silver crystal then you fight the elite four again and then you get to fight the main character from the previous game with, like, levels, I think, 70 or 80 Pokemon, which were, like, the best Pokemon from the previous game. It's just, like, a love letter to everything that was going on in the Pokemon world at that time. And, like, th that's why I call it a unicorn sequel, and that's why I would sort of lump in Gran Turismo 4 into this. It's, like, sometimes there's a sequel that just nails it, and that is the peak of the series, and I really love those games. Like, Yokai Watch 2 is another similar thing. Yokai Watch 1 was a promising, like, proof of concept for an idea, and then Yokai Watch 2 was like, okay, but what if we made a crazy-ass game out of this? And you see this often and often in video games, and... I tend to spot those and be like, okay, fuck the rest of the series. I want to play that one. And sometimes it's just like you play the best one in the series and you're like, I don't need to play the rest of the series now. I'm good. Uh, so yeah, I love Pokemon Gold. Uh, I also had a Game Shark and had collected all 251 Pokemon somehow illegally. Um, but that's another story. Uh, wow. Uh, my, 
when I got a Game Boy Color, I was uh, the one that got blue. And my brother, when he asked for a Game Boy Color 2, got gold as the Pokemon game. So that was interesting. Never really played it. Though I do recall what you said, that the graphics were way better. It was it was a real Game Boy Color game at that point, whereas the original Pokemon was a Game Boy game. Yes, and the way that the game teased you about stuff that was going to come much later, like uh, in Goldenrod City, there is a train station, and you're like, huh, train station, I wonder what that's for. And then you get to the first Elite Four, and... The train station still doesn't do anything. You go to it and they say, no, sorry, we're under renovation. And now you're like, why did they make all of these sprites for a train station with train tracks that isn't ever going to get used for anything? It makes no sense. And then like when you beat the Elite Four, you realize, oh, that's the train to go to the other side of the world from the previous generation. Like you have to unlock it and the because you don't actually go there via the train. You have to surf into a route and then go into a cave. And then you come out the other side and you're in the other continent. And then by the time you get to the city where the other train station is, it's unlocked. Um, But there are a bunch of little smart teases everywhere. Just like, there's something here that might become relevant later. You don't know what for. We're going to surprise the shit out of you later. (laughs) Interesting. Seriously, you're making me... uh, I'm sure... Oh, not sure. You know what? Maybe in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, Tony might thank you because I might pick it up. And one of my main problems with the multiple generation of Pokemon games that came through it is I was quite well attached to the first 151 Pokemons. And I would say even to this day, I could manage like the stats and all of that fun stuff. But when they start to expand and expand and expand, that that's where they lost me. It was like, hey, 151 was good enough for my brain to just... I to manage uh, for and if we're being honest the best designs were all in the first 251 anyway so maybe I could pick up with those but then I was like there's too much Pokemon at some point and that's what one we saw in the recent games that where they didn't include all the Pokemon that they created in the past generations and people were outraged I'm like no I think that's a good idea but of course if you're somebody like me I think Tony has a name for people like me that only believe about the first 151 Pokemon's uh, and I was not asshole before you make a joke about it. Uh, there was a specific name, but oh well. But yeah, I like to. I haven't played Let's Go uh, because I do feel that Let's Go is not really an RPG. Uh, but I wish that we had something like Let's Go, but it's just like literally a remaster of a remaster because that, that happened in with the GBA with the first gen, if I recall correctly. Well, there's the DS Heart Gold Soul Silver. Unfortunately, these games cost a lot. No, but I'm talking people love. I'm them. talking about the remaster of Red, Blue, and Yellow later on. That thing happened on GBA the same way that Gold and Silver happened on the DS. Yeah, uh, Fire Red and Leaf yeah, Green. yeah. And literally, I, I wish those happened a bit later. Uh, first of all, I remember I really wish that those happened on the DS because at that time I had my DS and I was like, I don't care about gold. And then all this fun discussion about gold. Okay, game number eight, Nick. Okay, this one is going to surprise the shit out of a bunch of people because most people probably will have never heard of it. It's an iOS game. It came out in 2011. It is an immensely successful iOS game, but still you might not really have heard of it. It's called Amazing Breaker. Hmm. It is a physics-based puzzle game in a very similar category to Angry Birds. Um... 
the difference is that it plays better on phones and portrait than in landscape. Uh, it's a game where you have these ice ice sculptures and you have various like gears and crystals and stuff that you can slingshot onto this ice thing. And your goal is to make 100% of the ice sculpture explode away and disappear. The reason it's on this game is it's probably my favorite iOS game of all time. It is also really notable because you don't really see these kinds of games anymore. It's still available on the App Store, which is mind-blowing. The minimum OS version is iOS 6, uh, but it's still downloadable, still works on iOS 13, uh, and it's still seeing occasional updates to bring it up to date for the latest OS, which is kind of surprising. Um, and the pay upfront model that supported these tiny like $1, $2 games uh, basically doesn't exist anymore on the app store and that's a shame and like the entire genre of like physics-based puzzle games kind of like this and angry birds and i think uh for a while um what was it called uh there was something zen float or something it was like the thing where you wrapped string around a uh, wood sculpture i don't remember the name uh, salary oh it was in a bunch of app store commercials and stuff um all of these games are games that excel on touchscreens and are uniquely suited to the short burst play sessions we have on smartphones. I think Amazing Breaker levels are about 50 seconds max to beat each. Uh, and it's like Angry Birds. You get a rating out of three stars at the end. Uh, if you do particularly well, you get like extra pieces that you can use to blow up more of it and all of that stuff. And it's just like this really rewarding but simple game loop for when you need to kill time and line at the grocery store or whatever, uh, especially nowadays. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. This is just what came out as the iOS game that I had the most fond memories of when I was looking through my backloggery and I was like, I got to give this a shout out in some way. Um, and it has 27,000 four or five star reviews on the app store. So like a bunch of people agree with me. And I remember this game was quite big when it originally came out. It's just, it's been nine years. So people might've forgotten about it, but it was really good at the time and still available. So go take advantage of it while it's there. Wow. Yeah, you should. I'm surprised that a game that supports iOS 6 to iOS 13 is still on the store. And yeah. That the that is well worth. I'm surprised you can even compile that, like a game that works from six to thirteen. Yeah, uh, I don't know what to say. I'm like this this small dev team or even this one person shop is just doing an amazing job because I'm sure it's quite of a help to do uh, in the recent day and age of iOS development. Okay, my last section, which is a bit following what I just said about shooters, is and I think it's the most recent games i would say in my list and i would say i am quite in if if a type of game made me somewhat like typical shooters or like first person shooters it would be the recent creation of battle royale games oh wow that was not where i thought you were going but that's interesting because i, I was reflecting about the recent shooters i've played and not even recent but like the, the past I'd say 10 years. Um, most of them were like, I haven't played recent Splinter Cell, but like there was like some of James Bond games. We've talked about my love of GoldenEye, even if I kind of start to agree with Yannick that the game sucked, but it's just GoldenEye. Ha! Nightfire's better. <laughs> no, no, GoldenEye is nice. I'm just trolling you. Uh, but 
I have a couple of those shooters. I've played a couple of like Call of Duty and all of that stuff, but I was never really into it. I was like, meh, you know, it's a shooter. You should be bold. Nothing fun, right? Um, but I feel that I find something nice to this PvP, I guess. I, I, that's the only possible, the only, not solution, but the only reason I figured out is while in general, I'm not a big competitive person online, like that goes and makes sure to be the best of themselves and the best competitor online. It feels that the premise of Battle Royale games really make me want to play more of them uh, over the weekend. So if we recall, I've played all of them uh, at that time uh, when we did the, when I did my Battle Royale episode. Uh, more recently, I haven't picked it up. Uh, uh, why am I forgetting your name again? Apex, Apex Legends. Legends. Uh, but my brother and his friend have uh, picked up the latest Call of Duty, of course, because my brother is a big fan of those shooter games. And I, uh, they released a the new Modern Warfare, and they released a free mode, really for the Battle Royale mode, called Warzone. So I installed it. And you know what? Okay, I have opinions about Battle Royale games. Like, yes, this is... Because it is a Call of Duty Modern Warfare, it is more, like, realistic. Uh, maybe I shouldn't do this comparison, but I, from what I've gathered throughout the years is those Modern Warfare games from Call of Duty are kind of the shooter equivalent to Gran Turismo. They're quite realistic, except the one that was in space. Uh, but ignoring those, this one, that when you went to space, like, those are really, really reali- realistic. And I'm like, okay, uh, world is always... always already too messed up so i don't want to play messed up games and but overall i do feel that the craziness of battle games where everybody's just jumping in an arena and you have to survive to be the last one and the, the circle and you have to have there's a lot of tactics around it compared to a normal shooter uh, i feel that it kind of makes me disconnect from that aspect of hey it's a shooter where you kill people right even if it's simulated people you still that aspect and it tickles my tactics sides of my brain and just enough so i'm not getting bored too much or getting too like uh wired uh, tripped up by oh like i was talking about the chess pieces i need to move in final fantasy tactics or all those <laughs> rpg tactics games uh just enough and again maybe because i know it's human behind it like there's an element of randomness you don't really really know what other people will do uh but overall that to me is is a recent addition to me as a gamer i would not have guessed a bit like what yannick you just said when i said that that i would have enjoyed this type of game as much as i did and i'm still again not really sure why uh because this doesn't fit my typical type of game and that to me is quite clear these days is if you send me a game that is story heavily based on story that i can do in 30 hours and the uh, graphics are amazing i'll be like okay where can i sign to get a copy like that's literally my type of game uh and that is with gran turismo uh kind of a different type of game that i enjoy and that's what i have to say about battle royale game and i felt that it was weird enough so i wanted to end with that one Hmm, that actually ties in pretty nicely to my next uh, game. And final one, if I come. Yes, Perfect. it is. So a lot of people who know me might have noticed a 
pretty important omission from this list, and that, of course, is Destiny 1, uh, mm. released in 2014 for PS3, PS4, Xbox 360, That's and true. Xbox One. Uh, I spent 960-something hours playing Destiny 1 while it was there, so f- over the course of three years. Um, yeah, uh, Destiny is a game that I have a lot of emotions about, uh, not just... Destiny 1 being mostly good emotions and Destiny 2 being mostly bad emotions. Um, But it's also the source of kind of my first good social experience in multiplayer games with a group of people as opposed to one-on-one play. Uh, So back in like 2004, 2005, 2006-ish range, uh, I was a moderator for this website called YesMeet, which was a website where people using the Nintendo Wi-Fi connection on Nintendo DS could play together. And uh, originally, I was just a general moderator because I was a friend with the guy who ran the site. Um, but I eventually became sort of specialized as the moderator for the uh, Metroid Prime Hunters uh, subforum, which was sort of the first big... FPS, online FPS I got into. Uh, It was not primarily online FPS, but it had an online multiplayer mode that was amazing for a DS game. Uh, And even for non-DS games at the time, it was amazing the fact that it worked as well as it did over Wi-Fi and like Wi-Fi from 2006. Kind of mind-blowing. But in those games, the player community was so small that like the max amount of people you could play was really like four people. And you were rarely playing, like, versus matches with more than one-on-one games. So it was really more like dual play, like you would see in something like Quake, uh, where it's really just, like, one-on-ones in this big arena and you have to do stuff. Unfortunately, Metroid Prime Hunters was kind of shittily coded, and there were a bunch of glitches that you could exploit. And eventually, the glitches stopped being just glitches, and then people got Game Sharks, and then they became more than just glitches because... People were literally shooting through walls and other things uh, that should not work. Uh, So that kind of ruined Metroid Prime Hunters. Uh, But I had had like good experience sort of one-on-one with other players and exchanging uh, friend codes at the time and all that stuff uh, to play with people. And Destiny is really the first time where I was playing with a party of more than one other person. Uh, We had the clan for select button, which is a forum that I hang out on. Uh, called the Panther Moderns uh, on Destiny 1. And uh, ever since I sort of joined that clan and we started playing regularly in... Uh, it was within year one of Destiny 1, so probably like early 2015 I started playing with them. And we played until the end of the game, uh, until Destiny 1 sort of died off because Destiny 2 uh, started becoming the primary thing we have some unforgettable experiences we unfortunately have had like one of our clan members died while we were playing destiny one uh so that sucked um and we've had some triumphs over some incredibly challenging bosses uh we like if you're not familiar with the notion of massively multiplayer online games uh there are these things called raids raids are these super hard activities which have Byzantine mechanics uh, that are never explained to you. And your options are either to go in completely blind and figure them out by yourself, which is what we like to do. Or you can wait for uh, two or three days for someone to make a video guide of how to beat it. And then you can go look at the guide and then you just have to all do your things correctly. And hopefully you'll beat it if you're high enough level and all that stuff. I was one of the blind raid participants for the last two raids uh in the game yeah that's right uh i did 
King's Fall for uh, the second year of Destiny, and then uh, Wrath of the Machine, which is the best raid in Destiny, according to me, uh, from the third year. Uh, and those were amazing. We just went in completely blind, and we tried to figure out the, the mechanics, and we managed to get through the whole thing. Sometimes it took many, many hours. I think uh, our first attempt at King's Fall is on my YouTube channel, and I think it took us something like 40 hours to beat it the first time of in-game time uh, to actually beat the thing but it was incredibly rewarding when we did it because we figured everything out by ourselves um and like this is for all intents and purposes the first mmo that i really played seriously Uh, i had tried the trial for world of warcraft in like 2006 2007 something like that um but i had no idea what i was doing and i didn't have anyone to play with so i pretty much just died repeatedly for the amount of hours that i had in the trial and then said like nah this doesn't seem like my kind of thing uh so that was kind of a bad experience and then i had some experience with fantasy star online on gamecube but that's kind of a different thing it's it's an mmo but in a very different style and doesn't really feel like what most people talk about when they talk about mmos um and now i'm just like now that destiny 2 sort of has not what i'm looking for from destiny 1 i'm kind of looking at other mmos with the puppy eyes and seeing like do you have what i'm looking for <laughs> kind of like a drug addict or something and I, I mean i've played a little bit of world of warcraft over here on the side i've played a little bit of final fantasy 14 on the side both have elements that i kind of enjoy uh nothing is quite as good as destiny and i think the reason that i love destiny so much is also because Bungie is really fucking good at making console FPSs. Like they knocked it out of the park with Halo, and this is just like the evolution of the Halo battle engine to the next degree. Uh, I think nobody is making console FPSs better than Bungie right now. Uh, I think people who have switched to playing on PC with mouse and keyboard are missing out on a part of the Destiny experience because the amount of work that they put into making it feel good on a controller is completely lost on you if you're playing on mouse and keyboard, and I really appreciate the work that they put into it because it's phenomenal and you go and play other console RPGs and it feels like shit and doesn't feel as good. Uh, Even games I really like, like Overwatch, like it feels like you're playing a PC shooter on a console instead of playing something that was made for console. And Destiny really nails it. And I think it's the only game that really nails it right now. So sort of like the fusion between good game feel uh it fits with like the tactile aspect of what i appreciated and mentioned early in the episode and also just like the good social experience that i had and can probably never relive uh in destiny which is why like this is one of those games and i think i mentioned this when i first bought the ps4 uh i said i wanted to get into uh, get the ps4 at that moment because destiny was hot and i wanted to play destiny while it was hot because when it's not going to be hot it's not going to be the same thing and I had a fabulous experience throughout the life of Destiny. And unfortunately, like even if I recommend it to you now, it's not going to be the same thing. You had to be there. And this is the first game where I have something like that, where I can say you had to be there. And it's left an impression on me. And I have the shirt to prove it. I have the shirt uh, that you only had if you filled out the achievement book <laughs> for doing the thing. So I was rewarded for my 960 hours with a shirt with my name on it. Um, but yeah. Um, it, it was a really interesting thing to do. And unfortunately, Bungie kind of flailed around for Destiny 2. And I might be working on a YouTube video about that, but who knows if I'll have ever had the time to work on that. So maybe to be continued. Yeah. MMO reminds me, like, 
when you hear a lot of people, uh, we mentioned a couple of iOS games in this episode, and we're like, oh, it's like it got away because of like the 64-bit requirement, and people are like really pushing about preservation of video games. And I'm like, yeah, that's good that we focus on some of those mobile games, but we are losing collectively a lot of nice experience around MMOs because once the server goes away because nobody's using it and it's too expensive to stay alive, we might be losing big important games in our video game history. And what you're describing with your own experience of Destiny 1 is literally that. Is That was a moment in time and you had to be there. And it will be hard to relive. Yeah, uh, John Syracuse kind of mentioned this I don't know how many months ago, but uh, he said one of the fascinating things about Destiny is not only the game Destiny, but also sort of the meta discussion of like what Bungie is doing to the game to satisfy and piss off players. (laughs) And that is sort of the other meta level on top of it. And the problem is like they screwed up so bad with Destiny 2 that it's not even kind of fun to follow that anymore because it's just like you guys should have just evolved Destiny 1 instead of making Destiny 2. What are you doing? Um... And I feel like uh, I tweeted about this earlier this week. A lot of the energy, the time and attention that I was putting into Destiny got rerouted into Magic the Gathering, where the same thing happens. But the difference with Magic the Gathering is because they're paper cards, if you're not playing digitally, of course, um, if Wizards of the Coast decides they're taking a decision with the rules or whatever that you do not agree with, you don't have to care. Like, if you're not playing tournament mar- magic, you can just not play with a new rule. And keep you can keep playing the same game forever if you want to. Right. You you own the, the game, more or less. Like, you own the physicalness of it. Yes. Like, the it's the rule application is entirely to you. Whereas something in Destiny, uh, like, the first raid in Destiny gave you... Uh, you had a chance of rolling this very special weapon called Vex Mythoclast. Uh, which had a very small chance of rolling because it's the rarest drop in the raid. Uh, I have one. Um, There was, like, when it first shipped, that gun was incredibly powerful. It was melting people in PvP games left and right. They patched it, and now it's less powerful. Like, you can't continue to play the game with old Vex Mythoclast. Like, there's not a menu on Vex Mythoclast that is like, can, I'm going to play with the Vex Mythoclast from patch version 1.0.1 because it was good then. Like, you don't have the, that flexibility in MMO games. And that's kind of just like a fact of life you have to deal with. It's like the world gets corrected over time. But sometimes it's entire mechanics that get reworked or pulled out of the game or... uh like in certain cases guns were way too powerful and they had their main ability removed entirely because it was too good and it's like well this doesn't feel like the same thing anymore um it feels a lot more like a living game and i think that's the goal right they they want it to feel like a world but yeah there's a lot less of that permanence that you feel from like tabletop games and all that stuff so there's definitely that the other thing that's important to note is like Earlier, I mentioned I played World of Warcraft. Like, I didn't play official World of Warcraft. I played on a private server uh, before uh, World of Warcraft Classic came out uh, because, funnily enough, Blizzard realized that people liked old World of Warcraft more than new World of Warcraft, so they remade available old World of Warcraft on a separate server, uh, and that launched last fall. Um, But that effort to relaunch old World of Warcraft Classic wouldn't have been possible if people hadn't effectively been like 
ripping resources from the servers permanently <laughs> while they were playing old World of Warcraft so that they could build their own private servers and then feed that information back to Blizzard when they got hired by Blizzard to do the new World of Warcraft classic thing. Uh, so, like, there, every MMO-style game needs to have some level of preservation effort where people are just, like, grabbing every patch file they can find, grabbing every API resource they can rip to try and piece that together into a private server eventually if they want to preserve the game. And unfortunately for Destiny, uh, because it's a console game, we're a lot more limited in the amount of hacking that we can do. Uh, because like, I'm not entirely up to date on what is possible with the PS4 modding scene right now. But like my understanding is it's much harder to mod that than to, let's say, mod Destiny 2 for PC. Uh, where there are a bunch of crazy hacks right now uh, that are allowing people to cheat in Trials of Osiris, which is hilarious because they put out a memo about that today. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I am. <laughs> Good. I hope with all of this discussion that we had today that you learn more about who we are as gamers. And stay tuned for next week because all of this information will translate into a good... Uh, how can I tease that? It will translate into... Yannick recommending me games. Yes. But I won't say more. And that's it for this week. Cool. So, if you want to find show notes where we will link to a bunch of these games and to stuff we mentioned in follow-up, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 134. Don't forget to vote for my game in the LD Jam. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, uh, the podcast is at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Uh, you can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nikodibi at... That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.